Hi, everyone. A quick programming note before we get to today's show. Pro Se is going to be off next week for Thanksgiving break. Now, this is usually when we give you the best of our offbeat segments for the past year, but fear not, we will still have that show for you later on in December. So enjoy the holiday and stay tuned to the feed. And with that, on to this week's show. Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hey, Amber. How are you? Doing well, and we have another guest host this week, Haley Knopf. Hello. Thank you for having me. Haley, we're, we're very excited to have you on the show. I am particularly excited because finally I have another Real Housewives fan here <laughs> on Pro Se. Yes, yes. And as we all know, many Real Housewife franchises have turned into legal dramas. So this could all come together for us. Yeah, this is I'm I'm happy to let you guys play jazz on this if you want. Uh, I can I can hold my own in a lot of reality show conversations. I've not dipped into the Bravo verse very much just oh, because Alex, like I'd love to bring not- you to this dark side. I have no opposition to it or anything. It's more like there's just such a vast universe now like I know it started with the Housewives shows and then like they got their own shows, which begat other spinoffs. And I like there's so I, many spinoffs. There's shows on boats. There's shows on islands. There's shows yes. all over. There's much to be told about it. Um, we won't dive too into that, though, because yeah. we do have a really good show to get to, including our interview a little later with Sarah Martinson. She's one of our reporters who's taken a deep dive into the problems with the military justice system. Mm-hmm. Kind of writ large, but also specifically when it comes to the, the prevalence of sexual assault cases and how those are handled in military justice. Uh, yeah, Sarah wrote some really interesting stuff. Uh, you guys handled that interview with her. I'm eager to hear it myself. Um, so before we get to the news, I did want to say I was actually going to say I'm happy to have Haley here because I've been told the show is a little too New York centric and she, of course, oh. lives in L.A. Uh, do you want to give us uh, any of the haps from out west, Haley? Yeah, so uh, it is frigid today. It is 60 degrees, so all right. we're all bundled up. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is why New York people stop talking to L.A. people. This is what happens. <laughs> yes, uh, well, and on that note, we have an update in a New York story. So uh, we, we, we had L.A. corner, and now we're going. Uh, uh, I wanted to update a couple of shows ago. Uh, we talked about the... Um, uh, contract breach suit against Jay-Z and his company against a perfume company that said that he had kind of ghosted on promoting his new fragrance. We got um, we got a verdict in that case. Um, the company was suing Jay-Z for about $68 million, uh, and they lost. Uh, Jay-Z walked, uh, walked off not uh, owing them anything. The jury returned a verdict in his favor. Um, now, he technically also lost. He had countersued the company for just shy of about $7 million. Um, he lost on that claim, too. The uh, justice, the uh, uh, New York uh, state judge who was overseeing the case said, you failed to prove your case, and they failed to prove their case you're excused, which is about as academic <laughs> as a legal proceeding can can go, I guess. Uh, the other note I want to add here before we get into the news is um, as he was walking out, one of the reporters who was shouting questions uh, at him said, Jay-Z, do you, do you have 98 problems now? 
uh, oh. which is a decent joke, I suppose. He laughed. He was like, ah, it's a good one. Or however he thought. You know. is, it, um, so. is it a decent joke? Because in my head, as you were talking, I was like, can I make a 99 problems joke? What would it be? What would it be? <laughs> and then I talked myself out of it because I was like, too obvious, too easy. Yeah, You have well, higher standards. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, that's that on that. But I do know we have some uh, some news to get to, including uh, very closely watched trial uh, underway now uh, with some big law connections. So, Haley, I know you were uh, uh, on top of that one for us. Let's uh, let's hear about it. Yeah. So the very uh, long awaited trial um, in this years long battle between King and Spalding and an ex associate um, has finally kicked off uh, in New York federal court. So basically. 37-year-old senior associate David Joffe was mm-hmm. fired in December 2016. He says it's because two King and Spalding partners lied on behalf of a client, which was purportedly um, the Chinese telecom giant ZTE Corp. Yeah. Um, and he raised ethical concerns about that lie. But uh, predictably, the firm says he was fired because he was bad at his job. Yeah. So as you said, this one has been uh, in the works for a while and it sounded familiar to me. And I had suspicions that we talked about this on the show once before. And I had to go way back into the archives to episode 14. Uh, if so, wow. the real old the real old pro se heads know this was just after the the the, um, the Joffe sued the firm. And now years of machinations uh, were now on the eve of trial. But um, just because so much time has passed, just catch us up on the history here a little bit. Yeah, it's been uh, quite a quite an interesting ride. Um, our own uh, Law 360 reporter, Max Jager, wrote a great trial preview summing up the twists and turns uh, over the past four years. But so notably, one of the big things that happened is Joffe and his former counsel didn't get along. Um, and that attorney, uh, whose name is Andrew M. Moskowitz, left the case in 2018. Yeah. Moskowitz told the court at the time that Jaffe had questioned his competence, uh, threatened to find a new lawyer, and uh, perhaps most importantly to Moskowitz, Jaffe hadn't paid his legal bills. So where did that leave Jaffe um, if, if that attorney is no longer with him on the case? Yeah, so Jaffe is now representing himself. And he'll also have to share a portion of any winnings with Moskowitz. Uh, that part of their their little spat actually went all the way to the Second Circuit. Uh, Moskowitz asked the court for a lien on Joffe's possible recovery to pay for those outstanding legal expenses. Um, a magistrate judge agreed. Joffe asked the court to remove the lien. No dice. Uh, and the Second Circuit upheld that. So that's uh, a lot of sort of interesting back and forth to get us up to here. But what can we expect out of the trial that has kicked off? Yeah, it's expected to be pretty rough uh, for both Joffe and King and Spalding. The federal judge overseeing the case, uh, U.S. District Judge Valerie Caproni, had actively tried to convince the parties to find a resolution. At a hearing last month, she actually said, quote, this trial is not going to be good for either of you. Awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Always good to hear from the judge yeah. that will be overseeing your trial. Yeah. So Max covered this hearing as well, and he described Judge Caproni as, quote, exasperated at the time 
and she warned that the trial would re-air Joffe's dirty laundry, plus dirty laundry that hasn't previously <laughs> been aired. New and different laundry that is sullied. That's going to come out. Yes. 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 And what about Multiple- the firm, though? Yeah. Multiple loads of laundry here for Joffe. Um, yes. And it'll it'll also look bad for the firm, she says, because it will re-put in the press all of the ZTE matter, um, which she said is not an attractive situation. And, you know, she's right, because here we are right now. Well, yes. I mean, this is interesting, though, right? Because usually these kinds of things, for these exact reasons the judge is saying, they usually do settle so that this stuff isn't in an open court record somewhere. So it's kind of surprising. Um But what have we seen happening so far? Yeah, so it's already been uh, quite entertaining, particularly the logistics of Joffe representing himself. Mm -hmm. Um, Law 360 reporter Pete Brush is covering the trial, and he reported that uh, the judge has referred to Joffe as either wearing his lawyer hat or his witness hat, depending on what he's doing. So on the first day of trial on Monday, Joffe wearing his lawyer hat gave his opening argument. He -hmm. then donned his witness hat, took the stand, and fielded questions posed by a non-lawyer friend of his. A rather unusual way to go about things. I mean, I've heard of asking your friend to like, maybe officiate your wedding. Can you go ahead and get that online license for that? But asking your friend to step up and examine you on the witness stand is not something you hear every day. Yeah, I I said this in our production meeting. I was uh I was reminded of the Seinfeld episode where where Newman's trying to get out of a uh speeding ticket or a parking ticket or something and he has to examine Kramer on the witness stand to like to like uh you know, substantiate this alibi or something. It really calls to mind. I also <laughs> a few years ago was going to fight a parking ticket uh in New York and I I didn't end up doing it, but I did ask our own Zach Zagger who uh is not a lawyer, but went to law school. If he would represent me, we didn't end up having <laughs> right. to actually. We didn't end up. We didn't end up having to do that. But the point is, yes, you can do this stuff. But it does make obviously for some interesting theater in the courtroom, which is what's going on here. Uh, what else is going on? Yeah. So then on Tuesday, um, the firm really tore into Joffe's job performance. Uh, this, I suppose, is the dirty laundry that the judge was referring to. Mm -hmm. Um, And they showed the jury some really harsh internal feedback from 2015, which was the year before he was fired. And at that Mm -hmm. time, a former King and Spaulding partner wrote that she had, quote, no confidence in Jaffe after he made an error in a client bulletin. And client bulletins are seen as pretty important for the firm. Um, I guess they help with building their accountability, liability, defense practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, But basically, she, she wrote, I have no confidence in David's work and will never staff him on a matter. Mm. Doesn't get more straightforward than that in terms of feedback. Um, And then what happened just yesterday? Yeah. So then on Wednesday, Joffe took the stand again and actually testified that one of uh, a different partner that was actually on the ZTE matter, quote, never had any animosity toward Joffe and actually gave him the highest ratings in his 2015 job performance evaluation. So, you know, kind of a back and forth here as we could Mm -hmm. predict uh, what happened, but it'll definitely be interesting to see how everything shakes out. 
Yeah, I mean, this is like basically catnip for for the Law 360 audience in a lot of ways. This is like, you know, the big law version of page six uh, or something. You know, a he said she, a, a, you know, a, an attorney said attorney said dispute about incompetence or ethical breaches. Great stuff. Um, if you're interested in this, do stay tuned to the feed just because I think we're going to try and have um, Pete. Pete Brush is covering the trial on uh, when this wraps up in a couple of weeks. So stay tuned for that. Next, I want to turn us to um, just a straight-up salacious case that has been brewing down in Florida where a, try and stay with me here, a state judge is accusing a local attorney of blackmailing her with the release of nude photographs as part of this protracted custody battle over the judge's son. It's uh, quite a wild story that has been, uh, it's not new, it's been going on for like six or seven years, um, that there have been some developments, our awesome uh, Florida team has been all over it, and I thought it would be good to uh, break it down here. I mean, the the intro to this, Alex, is very Lifetime movie, so I'm <laughs> interested to hear more. Tell us what exactly is happening here. Yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack. The I noted in reading both our coverage, our coverage is very good, but the, but the local press has also been all over it down in uh, Palm Beach in Florida. And they have described it as something between a Grisham novel and a telenovela. Oh, that's uh, such a so better combo than what I said Lifetime movie. Yeah, I'm sure that, it is. Telenovela that, and Grisham book. That gives you the idea of the kind of frequency we're operating on here. So let me try and break it down. It's a little involved, but I'll do I'll do my best. It all stems from a child custody battle between Palm Beach County Judge Marnie Bryson and her ex-husband, and that began in about 2014. Uh, all of all of what I'm about to say comes from court documents that Judge Bryson has since filed. So when her ex-husband stopped visiting their young child. Bryson went to court to have their custody arrangement uh, uh, changed to amend to, because she says her ex-husband wasn't showing up to see the child. Now, to do that, to strengthen her case, she wanted to subpoena her ex-husband's new girlfriend, who uh, is a woman named Stephanie Toothaker, and she is an area attorney, and she's a Democratic fundraiser who at the time was flirting with a congressional bid. Now, when Toothaker received notice of this of this subpoena, she enlisted the help of another attorney, a man named George Scherer. And here is where the whole situation gets extremely gnarly. Judge Bryson claims that in November of 2015, she was interrupted during court proceedings to speak with uh, an associate of Scherer's who said that Scherer had acquired intimate photos of the judge and was prepared to publicly release them if she did not drop this uh, subpoena request in her custody battle. So she's pulled out of court by this person on behalf of, of the girlfriend's attorney and says, I have these photos, uh, or, or intimate that he has these photos and they may see the light of day if she doesn't brush this aside. Wow. Yeah, I, I'm glad you specified that she was pulled out because I was kind of picturing someone standing up in the courtroom <laughs> and just yelling it, you know, in the middle of some very standard administrative proceeding. Uh, that's not exactly how it happened. I mean, the, the she said so she, she, she was pulled aside. And the important thing to know is that we end up in litigation with dueling lawsuits here. Um, Judge Bryson's attorney sends an email to Scherer's firm demanding $10 million to basically settle this dispute and bar the release of any photos and not having to litigate over it 
Scherer then promptly sues that firm and says that this like settlement demand is actually just an extortion effort by the judge's lawyers. Now, he ultimately drops that suit. But the thing we're talking about today is that Judge Bryson sued Scherer himself basically for the infliction of emotional distress over the photo threat. And that has now worked its way through the courts. And that's what we're actively litigating here. The judge has now sued this lawyer who she says is shaking her down over these over these photographs. It's so crazy to even say the sentence, the judge has sued this lawyer. That's just such a weird setup for us. But what is the latest, Alex? Yeah. So this week there was there's the the first sort of um, front in this battle is that the judge has tried to add um, a request for punitive damages against Scherer. And the trial court said, yes, you can do that back in February. So, okay, put in your put in your punitive damages claim. This got reversed uh, on appeal at the state level, which said that her claims were not sort of specific enough to support this damages claim. So now they are haggling over whether on appeal, you know, uh, she has fleshed out these allegations strongly enough. And part of the imprecision about the details of these allegations is comes from the fact that Judge Bryson cannot recall exactly what this person said to her in 2015 when this allusion to the photo was made and whether an actual sort of actionable threat occurred. And Scherer's uh, attorney told the court, basically laid that out for the court on Monday. He said, quote, Your Honor, this court makes decisions based on evidence, not on feelings. This is a court of law, not a court of sentiment. So there's a little bit of, like, telephone happening here between, like, was there an actual, like, threat made to you saying we will release this photo if you don't comply or is this more like this is the impression she got when she had the conversation with this guy so it's a little bit of some sticky um area there and the judge who's hearing the case responded by saying that um you know this guy who appeared with the judge on behalf of Cher was clearly there to convey some sort of message and the parties are there to figure out exactly what was trying to be conveyed was it a threat was it a point of discussion, something else. Here was what the judge had to say. Quote, I'm not going to say it was to make her an offer she couldn't refuse, but some people might interpret him even being there, saying basically that she might want to back off from her lawsuit because of the things that might come out. That's what I'm considering is being actionable. So we're in the weeds of, you know, when is a sort of, you know, revenge porn threat conferred, right? That's basically what we're mulling over here. The next, like I say, so so what you're, if you're interested in this case, what you're going to watch for is whether the judge can seek punitive damages over what she thinks is a threat to uh, have sensitive materials released about her. There are layers to this thing, by the way. I'm giving you guys like top line because it's quite involved and I would definitely recommend you read the reporting by our own Nathan Hale and Carolina Bellato who have been all over this for years. Um, worth noting that this purported shakedown happened when the judge was running for re-election. I mentioned that the girlfriend of the ex-husband is a political operative. So I wouldn't even want to read too much into that because we can only stick to what's in the court documents right now. But there's a lot of intrigue um, and uh, definitely uh, stay tuned for more as it develops. The 
U.S. military has a terrible track record of mishandling sexual assault cases. Some lawmakers say the military court system is due for an overhaul, with improvements needed from the investigation stage all the way through the filing of charges and the seating of juries. Here to explain the problems with the military's handling of sex crimes is Law 360 reporter Sarah Martinson. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you, Amber, for having me on the show and spotlighting this issue. I'm really excited to have you break it down for us because it is a big issue and we I don't think we've talked about it on Pro Se before, um, but I want to talk first kind of to set people up. Let's zoom out and talk about how prevalent it really is. Yeah, it definitely. Um, I don't think you guys have covered it on Pro Se. It's actually not something we uh, covered really with Law 360 either, but each year thousands of military members are sexually assaulted. Um, it's hard to know what the exact number is because um, not all military members report their sexual assault, um, but the Defense Department does try to figure out how many sexual assaults happen each year. In the Defense Department's most recent annual study, it found that more than 20,000 military members um, were sexually assaulted in 2018. Yeah, that's a big number. I mean, it, not only is this very common, but I think your reporting laid out that the justice system that follows um, behind these sexual assaults doesn't always lead to the kind of justice victims are looking for. Yes. Um, the military justice system has a lot of problems. Oftentimes, uh, victims, um, even if they do report their assault, their assailant isn't charged or prosecuted. So, you kind of touched on this, but um, your reporting included a lot of stories from victims that really kind of explain some of the problems that happen when they report their assaults and move through the rather archaic military justice system. Um, can you share some of those? Yes. One of the victims I talked to is Amy Marsh. Her husband um, is an Air Force officer. Um, she was sexually assaulted by somebody above him, um, a chief master sergeant, and she eventually decided to report her assault. And the sergeant, he was not prosecuted. He was not charged. Um, he was not court-martialed. He did get administrative discipline. Um, so he was forced to retire and he had one of his ranks stripped. So that just meant in retirement, he was going to get less pay. And Amy personally didn't feel like that was enough punishment because he was already planning on retiring. And her husband got harsher punishments than the sergeant that had assaulted her. He was prevented from advancing in his career. This is a tale as old as time, right? Like a victim comes forward and then she ends up worse off and somehow the other person is just chilling. Yeah, this is what we hear a lot. I mean, I know your story goes into it, Sarah. You sort of explained that basically your husband was charged with some minor infractions and it really messed up his career. But the other guy never got court-martialed for an actual sexual assault. And I think on the face of that, it's very shocking. Um, the reason he didn't face um, an actual charge um, in the military justice system is because commanders get prosecutorial discretion in this system. Can you explain how that works 
and why that's so different from how it works in civilian cases? Yeah. So in the military, there's this um, unusual system where instead, if a military member commits a crime that, you know, if they were a civilian and they committed in the civilian world and that would go through the civilian criminal justice system, instead, if that military member commits it, um, whether it's against uh, another military member or if it's against a civilian Um, the military has authority over that case. And so that means that the commander uh, who is ever in charge of that military member's unit, that commander decides how to handle that case. He decides whether or not to prosecute. He decides whether or not to charge that person. He can also decide not to prosecute and not charge and instead just administratively discipline that soldier. It really made a lot of sense to me reading your reporting that you had this analogy that if corporations and companies acted like the military, it would basically be like a senior executive at the company deciding to charge or ignore somebody who'd raped one of their coworkers. And obviously, that would never happen in civilian life. So it's a really weird system that goes on in the military. I think even I didn't realize before I started working on this story that there is a completely separate military justice system, a system separate from the civilian court system. Um, Sarah, clearly you have not watched A Few Good Men because that's the basis of all of my military justice knowledge. But it does (laughs) kind of tie in like if people have watched that movie I mean, the reason that commanders say they should have this power to decide who gets prosecuted and who doesn't is that it's their tool to maintain order. It's their way to, you know, make sure they know exactly what's happening with their unit and that justice is meted out in a way that meets their military objectives. But that doesn't feel super satisfying for these victims. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't watched A Few Good Men, actually. I watched it after I found out that the Pro Se team had done an episode on it. Um, <laughs> thank and that you, was thank actually you. in the midst of my reporting. It, it, while I was doing this reporting, I watched A Few Good Men. I listened to you guys talk about it. <laughs> um, but I feel like that that movie, it doesn't, it doesn't illustrate how different the military justice system is. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about that a little bit more. So I know just recently a report came out that essentially, you know, took the military to task for not consistently assigning specialists in cases like this. So they normally would have to do these certified lead investigators and special prosecutors to handle sexual assault cases. What's going on with that report? Um, What did they find that the military is doing wrong here? Yeah, that's a really important report because it basically supports what a lot of sources that I interviewed had told me. They had said one of the issues with the military justice system is that the prosecutors that prosecute cases and give advice to commanders about whether or not to prosecute or charge um, don't have enough experience. Um, And also the report found that the investigators, so the people that are collecting evidence for these sexual assault cases, crucial evidence that is needed to successfully prosecute these cases, don't have the training that is needed to collect the evidence um, to have these cases successfully prosecuted. And it's federal law, right, that that a certified investigator be assigned to these types of cases. 
Yes, it's federal law that prosecutors have specialized training and the investigators have specialized training to handle sexual assault cases. And in the report, the watchdog found that the military, in some cases, were not assigning special prosecutors and special investigators to sexual assault cases. And that affects the outcome of those sexual assault cases. So are we talking about not assigning them in a handful of cases or is this more systematic that there's a lot of cases that aren't getting those those specialized trained people involved? Yeah, the the Defense Department's Office of Inspector General had reviewed more than 400 cases and it found in more than 100 of those cases that specially trained investigators and specially trained prosecutors were not assigned to those cases, though military officials disputed that finding. So we've talked about these problems with prosecution choices, but um, another problem, according to reporting, is related to jury selection in military court, which to me was one of the more bonkers parts of your story. Tell us about about what can go wrong there. Yeah, the there are a lot of problems in the military justice system. It's not just with sexual assault cases and whether or not commanders decide to prosecute those cases or not. And it's not just, the only problem is not that the commanders who have no legal experience um, or might be biased decide whether or not those cases are prosecuted. The other problems in the military justice system are the jury selection. Um, A lot of times the victims will know the jury members. They will be people that are in their own unit. One of the victims that I talked to, um, she believes that the reason why her assailant was not prosecuted, even though the investigative service that had investigated her assault and collected all of this evidence, they did a rape kit, Um, They had pictures of the crime scene and they told her that they had more evidence than they ever had before for a case. And still the jury found her assailant not guilty. And she believes the reason why that was is because the jury members knew her assailant. She said that they were his buddies. Yeah, that is truly shocking if you don't know anything about how the military system works, because this just wouldn't happen in civilian courts. In civilian court, that's you see this in jury selection all the time. Somebody knows either the the alleged victim or the alleged assailant and they're tossed off the jury. We never keep people that know everybody. It's like the first the first rule of juries. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. That they're supposed to be impartial and They're clearly not impartial if they know the parties. So that's a really surprising thing. Sarah, you've laid out quite a few kind of big buckets of problems here. Seems a little overwhelming. What can we do to fix it? What's in the works? Is there any hope we have here? Yeah, lawmakers right now, they're negotiating or they're trying to hash out the next defense bill for next year. And there are a lot of proposed military justice system reform, um, addressing some of the issues that we talked about, like giving prosecutors special training to handle sexual assault cases, allowing for randomized jury selection, um, taking away commander's authority to decide whether or not sexual assault cases are prosecuted. 
So that's the big thing to watch out for. I mean, the defense bill is supposed to be decided by the end of the year and the House and the Senate, they have two different bills and each bill does not have um, all of the same proposed military justice system reforms. Sarah, I know you're going to have a lot more to write about since there's a lot of potential problems here, a lot of changes that could come to military justice. Thanks for explaining it to us. We'll be watching for your future stories. Thank you for having me on the show. our show is something offbeat and um kind of can't believe i'm doing this again guys but we've got another story about lawyers who aren't dressed appropriately and this one's pretty extreme so i just want to read you the headline pa attorney cited for taking off pants at courthouse door okay uh i want to say <laughs> when we were doing the production meeting amber and we we got to what we were going to talk about for this section of the show and you said did did you said something to the effect of, did you guys hear the story about the attorney who wasn't wearing pants? And when you said that, I was like, I assumed it was a Zoom mishap. And I was sure, like, well, as you would. I was like, come on, we've we've done this story already. Like this happens like it's embarrassing. Let's move on. But no, no, nope, this guy this was live at the courthouse person. Yeah. Let me <laughs> let me give you the facts. Let me lay down the facts Please. here, because it does sound like this would only be on Zoom. But no. Uh, here's what happened. So the attorney's name is Jeffrey Pollock. He's been practicing law for more than three decades. He was at the family division courthouse in downtown Pittsburgh. He got into what was described, I think probably gently as a heated discussion with a security <laughs> guard. And it was because he was repeatedly setting off a metal detector because he was wearing suspenders. He said he couldn't remove the suspenders from his pants and eventually got so upset. He just took off his pants to try to resolve this problem and get through the metal detector. He ended up standing in the middle of the courthouse rotunda wearing just his shirt and underwear. Can we go back to the fact that this was at the family division courthouse? <laughs> <laughs> sure. You know, look, um, kicking it up a notch in terms of potential problems here. Yep. This was at family court. Um, I have other questions though. Great. The, what else you got? Well, first of all, you know, Lawyers are always selling themselves on, you know, being problem solvers, right? You know, uh, he's like, hey, listen, the thing keeps going off. Uh, it's clearly got something to do with my pants and my suspenders. Let's remove the problem. In this case, my pants. Um, but but this raises an important question. Uh, Amber, couldn't the guy just take off his suspenders? I am not a person who wears <clears throat> suspenders unless I've rented a tuxedo. Uh, Alex, you would think he could just take off the suspenders, but I've yeah. learned quite a bit from this story about <laughs> suspenders. A thing yeah, please, as a woman, I knew very little about. So apparently he was wearing a special kind of suspender that some people call braces. They're the ones that are like leather with like the cloth strips that go around the buttons. So they're harder to attach. They're not just like, you know, some suspenders are just like the clip-on kind. It wasn't the clip-on kind. So he said it was so hard to take these off that essentially he couldn't. And um, I think what he really meant was it's not easy to do. And so he got frustrated and flustered, took off his pants. 
Um, Pollock also did say this. He said he's been in this courtroom a bunch and he's worn suspenders a lot. And usually, if there's any problem, they get out one of those wands mm. and just like do, wand him to make sure everything's cool and let him through security that way. So he asked for the security guards to do that and they refused. If you're just joining us, this is Suspender Roundtable with Law 360. <laughs> I think we're going to open up the phone lines. Benjamin in Omaha, you're on You know air. what? Look, people need to learn things from our show. And if nothing else, they're going to take away some little suspender facts this week. I mean, I'm learning about so many great suspender innovations. This is yeah, wonderful. Like, well, so why, why is this even a type of suspender? What function does it serve that you don't clip it on? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think you button it on, right? So it's it's. I think it still does all the suspendery stuff, but it's a fancier, tougher oh. to take off type. So the guy is literal fancy pants, if we're being <laughs> honest. Uh, so okay, uh, all right. So he's sitting there. He's sitting in the court, uh, pantsless, humiliated, maybe. Uh, yeah. What? By all, what? By all what accounts, was the fallout? Let's talk about the fallout. What's next? What's by happening? All accounts. He basically does this extreme move where he takes off the pants, folds them up, by the way, puts them uh, to the side. So well, you can't ruin the was, crease. You know, I love that you said that. I kind of like that detail because it means like he really thought about this in the moment. He was like, you know what? I'm not <laughs> going to sully my outfit. I am going to take them off though. Anyway, so he goes through, um, he's standing in the rotunda. Security immediately comes over to him. Sheriff, sheriff deputies actually took him into custody kept him for about an hour, charged him with disorderly conduct, and released him later that afternoon. <laughs> I did want to read one quote from the sheriff's y yes, office please, press release. Please read this. Okay. The sheriff's office would like to forewarn anyone who attends the family court division that visible underwear is not part of the dress code. <laughs> <laughs> there like you have it. That's your big takeaway. You've learned about suspenders, and visible underwear is not part of the dress code. This is bringing me back to like junior high when I used to sag my pants and, uh, and I would get in trouble. <laughs> Visible underwear was was frowned upon at Eisenhower Junior High and at the at the uh, what is it the Pittsburgh uh, the family the division family courthouse. Court. You in, know what could have helped uh, in, you out in, there, Alex? In some some nice suspenders could have helped you there, Alex. All right, I await. I eagerly await their guidance on uh, wallet chains. So maybe we'll get to that next week. I'm sure know. that's coming next, but All that'll right. wrap us up for today, regardless. And um, definitely want to thank a lot of people for today's show, including our guest host this week, Haley Knoth, our producers Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer Chris Yates, our guest this week Sarah Martinson, and contributing reporters Nathan Hale, Leslie Pappas, Pete Brush, and Max Jager. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review anywhere you listen to podcasts. That helps other people find us. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, check out our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.